All right. Okay, we're going to start on Daniel. And Daniel is very significant in our understanding of the end times. And I don't think anybody realizes how much the book of Daniel is like the book of Revelation, or vice versa would be more accurate. The book of Revelation is actually like the book of Daniel because Daniel is your original writer of the concept of some of the things that we're going through. Starting with this, we're going to be looking into the highlights and compare it to Revelation. The book of Daniel has two elements. There's the stories, great stories of what it's like to live it, and then there's the prophecies. And you find that woven into the book. So you'll be seeing these two elements all through the book of Daniel. The stories reveal to you one thing, how to be ready for the end times. <laughs> That's what the stories tell you. And then the prophecies reveal when those last day events will occur and what to expect from them. So it gives you not only what's <coughs> going to happen, but it tells you when it's going to happen. Some of the cleanest prophecy in the Bible. And it was said that people were doubting Daniel being written um, when it was because they thought for sure that some of the stuff that he came up with was written after the event and then they found him in the Dead Sea Scrolls and they were like oh it's amazing it's exactly where we thought it was and where they said it was so it's an amazing book and you've got to realize that the writer uh, the Apostle John knew this book very well so let's begin it begins with conflict and it begins with the opening of there's conflict in the Middle East. <laughs> it has been a perpetual thing. Do you know what two nations were involved in this conflict? That's how the book begins. Daniel 1.1. So what begins is Judah or Jerusalem, the capital, is the major conflict when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, led a vicious attack on Jerusalem. So it opens up with this uh, attack. So Judah and Babylon are in major conflict when Nebuchadnezzar decides he is going to take over Jerusalem. So the two cities represent two ways of life. Babylon represents one way that you can live your life and Jerusalem represents the opposite. Now Jerusalem was unique. There are a lot of um, cities or cultures that represent Babylon. There's a lot of different ways you could do evil. But Jerusalem stood alone. And Jerusalem represented a relationship with God. Jerusalem represented no idols. Jerusalem represented worshiping the living God, being faithful to Him. And it seems like no matter what happens or how history changes or how the names change or whether it's ancient or modern, it seems like if somebody is a true believer, they get attacked. And that's what we see here. It's like the one nation that was, that was the one that represented the worship of the true and the living God is attacked by evil. And so you see this, that good and evil was fought in the heavenlies, and then it comes down to be fought out on earth. And evil strikes good. And that is the opening, or that's the concept of what it'll end when it's the war of all wars, when it's the final conflict on earth, that evil will strike good. Now, you can know that this is exactly what it's saying because you'll see both Babylon 
and you'll see Jerusalem mentioned in the book of Revelation at the end of time. So in understanding it, when you read it and you just see, oh, well, here's the name of this country. I'm not even sure where it is or what it's about because we don't have a Babylon on the earth today, I don't think. So what does that mean in Revelation? Well, who is Babylon today? Do you know where that is on earth or where that was situated? So it's a literal place, but it's also it's representing the spirit of Babylon of what takes place here when Nebuchadnezzar rises up to strike Jerusalem. And it is that pagan. It is the secular. It is the society that has idols full of it. That is what Babylon represents. Now, there's a king in Judah, and it's his third year in office, (laughs) and this is when it, it takes place. So the kings have gone down the list until this moment in time. And because of not staying true to God, not being what David had set up as a kingdom, this place unfortunately happened in time where Jerusalem is going to be attacked. Now, that's what people always thought, this can't happen to us. So, I want you to see this. It's King Jehoiakim. His last name has the word Kim. (laughs) Verse 2 When he attacks, the first thing it says in verse 2 is they got something. They got the the goods. (laughs) And it talks about wiping out all the goods. And it says that the army took all the goods that they captured and they brought it back and they put these treasures in their temple to the pagan gods. Isn't that a picture of what happens? Anything that's valuable, anything that's worth anything, anything that means anything to us, the enemy's after it to take it back and put it in an altar or shrine to himself. And Nebuchadnezzar orders his court officials to get one more thing. They got the treasure, but it's interesting what he wants. And he tells him, bring me something else. In verse 3 and 5, he tells his God, his head court official, get me some hostages. So that means there's some people going to go back as hostages to this king. Now, um, the first thing that happens with the hostages, I want you to pay attention in verse 6. Because remember, this is your manual for the end days. This is the attack that will be upon you. This is, this is how it will look of it happened here in history and it will happen here again so in in verse 6 it's very important the first thing they do to the hostages do you know what they start doing to them they start messing with their identity the first thing the enemy does to you is start messing with your identity he takes you into captivity and the first thing in question is your identity that's where he wants the allegiance So you see that starting out by verse 6 of the book of Daniel, they are already changing the Hebrew names of these young men to represent pagan Babylonian gods. They switched their names. In this way, he was attempting to destroy their identity. Like They'll assimilate pretty quick after this. They'll, they'll act like any, any of our court officials by then. They'll act like Chaldeans by then. I mean, it'll literally... Uh, be uh, one of us. 
So Nebuchadnezzar had made up his mind to brainwash him. And what do you do when someone's trying to brainwash you? That's what the end times is about. It's a, it's a brainwashing. It's, it's going to change your identity is, is what they're promising. We're going to have this one global idea. So what is it? When Nebuchadnezzar <coughs> made up his mind to brainwash them, then you have to make up your mind not to be brainwashed. I want you to see how they did it. You know, we think of Daniel in so many different ways, and I think a lot of people, they start their year with the Daniel fast or whatever, but actually, I want you to see the sentence that he says. It says that Daniel made up his purpose. It means he made his determination. He decided. It was like Daniel made up his mind. Daniel purposed not to have this happen. So the beginning of what you have to do when an enemy attempts to take you over is you have to purpose. You have to make up your mind. I will not let my mind go in captivity. <laughs> they may haul you off. They may disrupt culture as you know it, your family as you know it, but the one thing you can't let be taken hostage is your mind and your heart. And this is where you see the ultimate conflict take place here in the book of Daniel. And this is exactly where you start. Right now, I would tell you purpose. No one will ever take over my mind. No one will ever make me see it the way that the enemy sees it. I will not let my mind and my heart go into captivity. Daniel used his will to go against what Nebuchadnezzar's will was. No matter how strong Nebuchadnezzar thought he was, Daniel said, I will maintain myself. You see a disciplined life. You see that he's not going to be defiled by the king's way of living crazy. He's not going to have all this, uh, this strong drink, the wine, and all the king's food. He made up his mind he was not going to defile himself. So you're going to live by your convictions. You come against a false spirit and you stick to your convictions. You're making up your mind. You will stick to your convictions. And so this is where Daniel is. He is a man who lived by his convictions. So when you study his life, you've got to see where does that get you? Was he just the the grunt of society? Was he just the gravel? Did he never make anything of himself? Did he barely survive? Did he hide under a rock? How did, how did he make it through this when he's a man that's going to stick with his convictions? And they were clearly his religious convictions. They weren't some philosophy. It was he stuck with his God. And uh, most youth would be excited to be invited over by a king. These new names were the entire program to turn a little a Jewish boy into a little Babylonian. And it's fit to be a traitor to his nation. Like they're, they're, they're making him be a traitor, an apostate from his God and a tool of the tyrant. And that's what the enemy wants. He loves to take Christian kids born in a Christian home and make you be a little, a little traitor, a little, a little apostate, a little tool of a tyrant, a little, uh, uh, plaything with somebody that's a dictator and that's what they did is they took the youth and you know and 
I'm sure it's how people speak about the youth today. Well, they'd fall right into their hands. They're into their hands before we're captive. But I want you to see what happened inside of these youth because this is really, truly a youth stand. This, this, is, this is a story of how the youth handled this, this occupation. And so Daniel immediately put abstinence in place. That's how he handled the pagan idolatrous community. And uh, yet Daniel was industrious and he was successful. He wasn't a monk. He wasn't out here all by himself, like um, having no influence on the society. Daniel literally practiced abstinence living in that society. All right. Religion didn't make Daniel lazy. It made him diligent. And I think sometimes we see it as, oh, just laying low. Not Daniel. Not that Jewish side. And then Daniel had favor on his life. <clears throat> they do a little experiment. In fact, they, they put it on trial. They put their favor on trial to see if it's successful. And the way they measure their experiment is by the success rate. It's the measurement. And they take the, in verse 17, every branch of literature, chemistry, math, English, <laughs> literature, and, and don't forget you're learning it in another culture with a different language. We have one of our own that's, he's having to learn these high degrees in a different language that's, that's very difficult to him. And so in their experiment of, of being abstinent from all the crazy things that the king was willing to lay on them. Like sometimes people go to college and they just lay out all this stuff before you that you can have. You know, like we're going to really treat you great because of your sports ability or because of your um, scholastic skills. You know, we're, we're going to really make it nice for you. And Daniel put a knife to his throat, and he backed away from it. So sit tight, Daniel. This captivity is going to last a while for you. Do you have any ideas how long Daniel was in captivity? We shall find out. So as I was looking at it, I was like, these are the things that we see in Daniel. The things that I have written down on a list that we must discuss. In other words, do you look at it as, as something that you must escape? You know, it's that ideal that so many people have of what does here on earth matter? Eternity's what matters. So I'm only going to think about eternity. And they don't have that idea of do we live the kingdom here and now? And so many people are, well, it doesn't matter because when I get to heaven. And they're banking on heaven and they don't do anything on earth. So the first thing I'm writing down is the Occupy concept is right here with Daniel. Of whether, when we ask that question, should we think like all the, the people we know that are religious instructors of, oh, you know, it doesn't matter here on earth. You're, you're, it, you're not building a home here anyway. Earth's not your home. So don't do anything on earth to, to make any kind of a mark. Your home's in heaven. You need to be eternally minded. I want you to think about Daniel. And not only think about Daniel if we were talking about him in his Jewish society, whether he should do this. We're talking about Daniel doing this in a pagan society. 
in a place where he is a captive. You know, I think that uh, Daniel, I'm sure, thinks uh, of Joseph, and he thinks, well, I remember someone in, in my family lineage and what he went through with Pharaoh. But honestly, this is more difficult. You know, Nebuchadnezzar would strike three times. Three times Nebuchadnezzar is going to go and carry off Jerusalem. But Daniel was carried off in the very first invasion. He was taken right at the beginning. You know, I can credit the book of Daniel for doing one thing. I know there was a period in my life when we were up at chiropractor school. And the chiropractor school was not what we expected it to be. When we got there, I was not expecting for it to only be 4 to 5% Christian in the whole school. And by 4 to 5% Christian, we were accepting in people that were Mormons, all different types. So they made it very unusual. But by the time you have Mormons in there, I'm like, and this is what we have as 5% Christian. Wow. Is this everywhere? I mean, I'm from the Bible Belt. At least you say you're Christians, not at the school. So it was so unfiltered with the New Age. Oh, we had the energy forces. We had the karma. We had the crystals, the channeling. There was so much junk. Now, none of this took place in the classroom. This was all the extra subjects. This is all what people were involved in privately. It's so bad that the 5% of Christians thought, we're leaving the school. And everybody decided, this is not for us. We did not expect this. So in the Christian Chiropractor Club, they let each of the chiropractors do a devotional. You can think of a dear chiropractor we know that was involved, Dan Zondag. <laughs> Long-haired Dan, his hair down his back. I was feeding that poor single guy. Everybody was involved of what do we do in this mess that we find ourselves in. And somebody did a devotional. And his devotional was, Daniel lived in a pagan society. And because of that devotional, we decided we weren't going to pack our bags and go home. And it kept the 5% there. And you know, I noticed something because I was young. You know, when you're young, your parents tell you, separate from this, separate from this, get away from this. When you get older, it's penetrate this. <laughs> Do something about it. Change it. And you have to, you have to remember the, uh, the change of venue. You have to remember the change of, uh, of what you're being called to do at this point, to penetrate a very dark place. So I started going to the parties. <laughs> and I started making a difference. Now, I left at 1030. But we started making a mark on Christians. Now, if you think about it, as Christians, we started making a mark. We started discipling the Christians. We started increasing the group. And we decided we would grow our 5%. And we would be heard. In fact, we took places of prominence. Becoming the president. Becoming all the different things of the school. And I learned something then. It's the enemy's trick to make the Christians pull out because it would go from 5% to no percent. But this one devotional saved us. 
And so with that in mind, I'm telling you, what will it look like for you when you're up against horrible odds? When you're up against a society or a, a pagan place that is literally trying to suck you in, I can tell you the book of Daniel explains for you what to do. So I look at this of living there. You know, the different things that they had to go through to be in the top of their pagan culture. Eventually you cannot get along with people that are constantly trying to exterminate you. <laughs> they have a couple things that they do to you all along. So how do you make it in this sort of a world? The next thing that I see in the book of Daniel is that he was successful in what he did. He did so much more than to survive. Daniel was truly an overcomer. He is your picture of what an overcomer looks like. If I was going to bring one thing to the table, I want Revelation no longer to look at we're going to survive, but we will overcome. Daniel demonstrates how to tap in to a set of resources that the world does not even have. Daniel goes to a realm of spiritual insight and gifts that gave him power for his problems that no one had tapped into before. Not in the way Daniel tapped into it. In fact, in spiritual warfare, we're still using Daniel uh, strategies that he pulled down. So it shows you that where there's a very dark society, God gives extra gifting. He gives extra power. He gives extra grace. So where sin abounds, their grace abounds much more. And that's what we see that Daniel actually lived it without letting it take over him. And as a hostage in a foreign land, subjected to the pressures of mind manipulation, Daniel did not survive. Oh no. He was spectacular. He triumphed. They wanted to be like him. When he won the contest, it was just the beginning of him beginning to win. Because it proved the way he did things worked better than all of them. He overcame insurmountable odds, and he was at the top of his game. As one young man from our college group that was looking on said, when you come to Brownwood, you need to bring your A-game with you. <laughs> because it has a lot of spiritual warfare to it. Well, let me tell you, it's because we're doing a simulated idea of what we will face later. So if you haven't put it in practice now, don't fool yourself that you're going to be coming in strong during the end days. If you're not thriving at this point, and you're barely looking at your life as survival, don't pride yourself that under huge pressure that for sure you're going to rise to the top. I would tell you, start it now. Now's the time to begin it. So Daniel had these different concepts that, that I felt like are pieces that we need to know about the end time that most people don't teach. You know, endurance of making up your mind, settling it in your heart that you're going to live and not die, that you're going to stay in the ministry and not give up, that you're not going to crack under the pressure, that you will endure to salvation. Those who endure to that point, to the very end, 
that they finish the race. They go across the line. They don't quit early in this race. They run to the end. The ideal of protection versus martyr. Daniel lived that out. There's two famous stories of the Hebrews here. The distinction that's made between the pagans and the believers. The national level, the Jewish people, your own people, your individuality, and also what you bring to the table and your giftings, your callings and your giftings. You know, Joseph prophesied his way out of problems. And you need to be honing your spiritual gifts. You need to be seeing what God will do with you. Uh, he, uh, you know, Daniel wasn't having, there weren't good dreams going on now. There were troubled dreams going on. And this is where the story begins. So in chapter 2, we firmly have the um, hostages have been relocated. We don't know how long it's going to last. They don't know how long it's going to last. But now the trouble begins. The astrologers, the, the people under witchcraft, the ones that use the pagan culture, the ones that are into all that, they've been learning their crystals and all this different stuff. They answer the king in Aramaic when he tells them, I've had a dream and bring me somebody to interpret it. Now what's interesting about the book of Daniel, and I think you need to make a note here, um, the Hebrews are especially aware of this because the book switches from being written in Hebrew to Aramaic here. Can you imagine? Here's the book in this one language, and then it switches over to Aramaic. Now, it's not going to last the whole book, but a portion of the book. So, when he demands this, they said, Oh, king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. And the Aramaic will be from this point in 2 verse 4 to chapter 7. So, this is one of the most the astounding examples of hearing God ever because Joseph had to interpret the Pharaoh's dream accurately but this guy is under a tyrant Nebuchadnezzar has one slight problem he can't remember his dream (laughs) and this is my favorite example of when your boss has something that he expects of you (laughs) that is crazy. (laughs) And he tells you, by the way, you've got to reconstruct the dream itself. You talk about someone wanting to go file an unfair complaint with the HR department. I mean, right here, they're like, what? You can't believe this. In verse 10 through 11, They come to him and they explain themselves to the king and they say, we're not incompetent. No one has ever asked such a thing of his people. And so he told them, he said, look, I'm going to tell you. He said, you will interpret my dream and you will tell me what I dreamed. And I don't think they got anywhere with the king because then he puts it on the table. Because if you don't, I'm going to cut you to pieces and I'm going to burn your family's house down. Having days like that. This makes you a dictator. (laughs) This makes you impossible. This makes you want to be filing your complaints, using your mouth. But let me encourage you, this is your time 
to shine when it gets impossible. This is your time to do something that is in the realm that only God lives in. Because let me tell you what the pagans set this up with. The guys in the court, when they go to him and say, it's not that we're incompetent, there's not another empire anywhere that's expected to not know what the dream is to give you an interpretation. And so they're explaining that to him. And so what they do is set it up to show the impossibility of it. And they said, let me tell you something. Only God could do what you're requesting to be done. Guess who enters the picture now? Only God can do this. This is where you enter. It's when people expect things out of man that man can't do. That only God can do. That is not when you shy away. That's not when you are brainwashed and you start talking your negatives like everyone else. If you get it personal and start going, how unfair is that? I mean, I'm telling you, this ministry expects you to do the impossible. Amen. If you're not in that realm, <laughs> you're not in the God realm. If everything you can do is something you can do, or by the power of man you can do, then you didn't bring God into your day. I have to tell myself that constantly. If everything I accomplished today was only what I can accomplish, then I didn't need God today. So this sets you up for something that they were going to be confronted with unquestionable proof that Israel's God was real and sovereign, powerful, limitless, and good. It's the impossibles that give you a chance to prove it. And it's on this note that this tyrant of a king expects something. You know what? It might be good to be a person who expects something. Not someone who doesn't have any expectations for life. This guy's expectations drew an answer to him. So, in Daniel 2 verse 12, he decides that it's going to be group punishment. In other words, this is not going to be me individually killing you. This is me going to be killing every last one of you. That's Nicodem uh, Nicodemus. <laughs> this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking here. You're all incompetent. I'm glad you gave me the use of the word. That's true. You're incompetent. So when he threatens group punishment, Daniel comes up with group prayer. I want you to see the uh, contrast here. In verse 18, <coughs> they begin crying out as a group. Now, there's another concept for the end times, crying out. I mean, you could take this one, just start, and start understanding what's expected. So instead of being all crazy over, traumatized, shocked over what's going to happen to you, he actually brings something to the table. And in verse 18 and 19, he gets his friends to pray for mercy. <laughs> we need mercy. <laughs> Lord, you know who's heard of such a thing. We need you. We need mercy. This pagan king dreamed whatever. Whoever knows what he dreamed. I need mercy. And I don't know if you remember the way that God did it to him, but 
Nebuchadnezzar had a secret that he couldn't remember. But what's interesting about Nebuchadnezzar, he knew what he dreamed had significance. So it's telling you, you can dream a dream and forget it, and it was an important dream. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't do a nice little prayer and say, um, would you come lay hands on me and pray for me that I remember it? He didn't ask God, please let me redream my dream. He was like, I'm going to kill you if you don't tell me my dream. You know, because, you know, I might have taken a shortcut and just said, let me pray for you that you redream it tonight. That it comes to you. But guess what? In verse 19, Daniel has a night vision. And he dreams the king's secrets. Now that's when God's letting you in on knowing what's inside of the heart of a pagan king. That's that discernment. When you walk into someone, you know what's inside of them. Daniel takes the time to dream it. And then when he dreams it, he doesn't go, alas, we're all saved and run to the king. He takes the time right then and he stops. And he thanks God before he runs to the king. You see how personal it was with Daniel. Because he's not like, oh, what a relief it is. You know, because so many times all we're into is solving problems. All we want to do is solve our problems or someone to solve our problems. But we don't make our relationships personal. And Daniel's relationship to God mattered to him. And he thanked the Lord for it. The words. He reveals deep and secret things. Now, I want you to see a little bit of Daniel's language here because this tells you a little bit about his walk with God. But in verse 21, Daniel says something. God gives wisdom to somebody. And God gives knowledge to somebody. Now, if you're one of these people who champions the underdog, or if you're one of these people who always thinks that, I don't know how you'd say it, that to those who don't have, something should be given. It's not what happens here. It's Jesus' principle, to him who has, more shall be given. So if you don't have anything, that's the real problem. Because notice what it says. God gives wisdom to, and it's not fools. If you've got a kid that's a fool, or if you're a fool, God doesn't give wisdom to fools. God gives wisdom to wise. Very interesting. God gives wisdom to the wise. God gives knowledge to the discerning not to the gullible. God does not give discernment to gullible people. He gives discernment to those who are discerning. He gives the knowledge to the discerning. So interesting here. It's not that mentality of how everybody tries to push it on it. That these gullible people and these, these um, naive and these fools... <coughs> That they're so blessed by God. No. They don't have, and even what they have shall be taken away from them. It's a very unique concept. Verse 23 is important. You have given me wisdom and might. Daniel's saying this to God. You have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me 
what, and notice the plural, we have asked of you. So Daniel didn't say, you've made known to me what I ask, but what we ask. So he takes it and he acknowledges the strength of everybody being in unity and praying. God, you gave it to me, what we ask. You give wisdom to the wise. I would invite you, be a part of the wise. I would tell you to take the Proverbs on fools and study what a fool is to make sure you're not a fool. Verse 24 and 25, the pagans are hilarious. You can interpret this a couple of different ways. Um, in verse 24 and 25, the guy who went out and found Daniel, the hostages, he says, I have found a man. The pagans want credit for this. They want to have a piece of the action. You know, maybe when this counselor goes up to the king, the reason he said, I have found a man. In other words, this is my man I bring it to you. Maybe the idea was, I don't want you to keep Daniel and kill all of us. So I'm letting you know, I found you this guy. <laughs> maybe it's that type of negotiation. Maybe he wants some credit for having discovered Daniel. I think it's interesting that this what it shows you is he had confidence in Daniel's ability. Because he wanted to take credit. But if Daniel was wrong, <laughs> it would not have gone well for him. <laughs> he would have been included in the disaster. So there's what I would call a little bit of pagan faith here <laughs> in the fact of, I believe in what you've got from your God. It's very unique here where he reaches over the line and he goes, I found this guy. And I want you to notice in Daniel's interpretation of this, there's one clear line that begins to take place in Daniel's prophesying. In the verses 27 through 31 where he does the prophesying, circle the words, in the latter days. People have tried to make prophecy be inspired preaching and not foretelling. This is how you know that God knows the future. There's some types of group think out there now that they don't think that God knows the future. He just knows all the possibilities. So I want you to notice what prophecy does. But it says, in the latter days. Now, in the interpretation of this, it's very unique what Nebuchadnezzar's dream has to do with. Like, you can memorize what the book of Daniel is. Like you can know in your head, okay, chapter 1 deals with, you know, the setting changes and moves them from here to uh, being in a hostile land. Number 2 is this dream, the remembering of the dream, and then the interpretation. And it's the latter days. But what it comes against is it's no longer a perfect society. You know, so many people think that education is so important. But basically this shows you that where people ignore the true God or where core values are, are not given, that you do get the society which starts to crumble. And it shows that society isn't going to be evolving up. It's going to be going down. So Nebuchadnezzar, the warrior king's dream, starts telling you about four kingdoms, four Gentile kingdoms. But I want you to notice it's a descending scale. They decrease. It's not like man has increased over time. It's showing the decline of man. It starts out with a head of gold, 
and breasts and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet of clay. Now, for Daniel to understand this, I mean, I mean, even hearing the dream, I'd be like, what does that mean? Gold, silver, brass, iron, clay. So this is how Daniel told him that it was going to be. This is not showing humanity evolving upwards, yet this shows deterioration. Society is sliding down. It's sliding off the scales. You see the history, and he's seen it as kind of a whole, uh, as the scholar says, the organic whole of history. These kingdoms were made by men, and a kingdom made by man is not going to stand the test of time. A kingdom will not be made by man. And he says, and just as you saw the iron mixed with the baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Exactly what they had done with the Hebrew children, they tried to mix them in. And it's always been a favorite of conquering despots to think that they can take and make their society stronger by mixing something good with something evil. So that's basically the first thing that you see. But this section of prophecy is very important. It's not only the idea of the mixtures, that it won't work, the decline, but it's going to show you the succession of world powers that will dominate this region until the final victory of the Messiah on the cross. God actually foretold right here in the dream the entire world history from Nebuchadnezzar till Christ. He tells him what's going to take place in the next 600 years. And that's how it's interpreted. It tells you first this kingdom, and this kingdom will be conquered by this kingdom, and this kingdom will be conquered by this kingdom, and this kingdom by that one. You all know the kingdoms, the Babylonians. And there's a second one that I'm going to say remained unnamed because I want to go into that in a special way. Number three is the Grecian idea. And fourth, Roman. And it goes right down the list. And when Rome comes into power, that's when the Messiah comes. So it tells you exactly how the kingdoms are in order. And it said that something interesting, when Rome came into power, everyone had to pay taxes. And this dream said the fourth kingdom will rule with a, a rod of iron. And it was very accurate in how the kingdoms did it. These more did assimilations. But this one says they will rule with the rod. Rome didn't just require taxes. They broke the people's back with high taxes. And they required it of every single person. And so that's why you had so many tax collectors around the time of Jesus. That's why they were so hated. They were just tax, tax, tax. You got Matthew, you got Zacchaeus. You remember Mary and Joseph had to relocate. Just to, I don't care if you're pregnant, you've got to be counted to have taxes. That is a sign of a weak pagan culture. There's high taxes and more of them. And it was Rome requiring a census. And that's where they tell them, don't rule with a rod of iron. Did you know that's ruling with a rod of iron? I don't care how nice they talk. Uh, on their State of the Union address, high taxes is a sign of a declining kingdom. Yep. <laughs> Put a nice name on it, and it's terrible. The king who has the dream t 
told to him and interpreted. Just an hour before he's ordered the execution of all his wise men, guess what now? He's prostrating himself on the floor before his foreign captives. He is laying down in front of these guys, in front of Daniel, and he's saying Jehovah is the God of gods. So we not only have the, his pagan astrologers say, if anybody does it, only God could do that. Nebuchadnezzar, he gets it. And he lays down and he says, Jehovah is the God of all the gods. He's the chief God. He's the king of all the kings. Truly your God is the God of all gods, the Lord of all kings. And he's a revealer of secrets since you could reveal this secret. Now, some people count this Nebuchadnezzar's uh, conversion. But you can see where pagans start being touched by the power of God. In Scripture, you can see where people start becoming aware. Like they didn't even know that this God had any power. But they're awakened to this God. They become aware of this God. Some people think it was some sort of a conversion to Judaism. But he was in awe of a supernatural answer to his problem. That's where it was at this point. But he does, with his mouth, give more acknowledgement than most um, Christian nations say in the pulpit. <laughs> you know, can you imagine our president, not illegitimate, but the true president, <laughs> he was one of the first to stand up and say, God is God. <laughs> and it had been so long since we've heard it because we'd had so many little weak presidents all along the line and they were so scared to say God is God. And yet you see this pagan king saying it's so much stronger than even what we have in Christian nations. The nations today that consider themselves Christians will not say that line. So the point that I'm making is even though we say it's not enough for conversion, I'm saying it's more than what we're getting out of Christian leaders on Christian nations. So you might rethink what, what that either makes Nebuchadnezzar positively or what that makes these Christian nation leaders negatively. If they can't say what he said here, they're lower than where he was. So in verse 48 through 49, he made him ruler of the whole province of Babylon, the chief administrator over all the wise men. So now Daniel is in charge of the prophets club, uh, except they're not all converted. <laughs> also, Daniel petitioned the king and he said, oh, could I have my... Three best guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Can they help me over the affairs? And so they put them over the charge of the province, but Daniel was made where he sat at the gate of the king. The gate is very symbolic of um, access. It's who you let in and out. Very important position of um, a handler. Normally this position would be reserved for a Chaldean nobleman because they considered themselves the master race. But here, they've got a Hebrew in there. So it's a very good chapter in two. You can see immediately how quickly these guys rose to power. But at the opening of chapter three, it's completely opposite than how two closes. Evidently, something stirred Nebuchadnezzar's demons. 
He's good friends to Daniel's. There's a lot of years, but he still goes to Jerusalem and destroys it with fire. And during this time, he builds the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. You starting to remember where this is, Babylon? He eventually named as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you had our soldiers when they came home from Iraq, they would talk to you about the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, built by Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, he started developing his nation. Chapter 3, it seems like that Nebuchadnezzar <coughs> deliberately made an entire statue of gold at this point for himself to say that the day of his reign and authority would never end. It would be always remembered. And it went against what God had said. So in the dream, you see the descent, but... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar decides, I will capitalize on the fact that my kingdom is gold and I will build myself a gold statue of myself, just like the dream. Do you see how his mind reasoned? Like, I'm going to build myself exactly what I dreamed. Daniel should be for this. I dreamed it, he remembered it, and we're doing it. So in the face of what God had said in the dream, that in chapters 3, and Nebuchadnezzar begins out by saying that he's kind of forgotten the true source. He's going to build himself as a 90-foot high and 9-feet wide statue. Now, you can imagine the size of what this would be. It's pretty imposing, 90 feet up in the air, 9 feet wide, built without cranes. I'd like to be there. To the, well, no, I wouldn't have. I can imagine the demonic world, but from an engineer's point of view, this construction was something else. And he built this image, and they put it in the plain of Dura. Dura, D-U-R-A. The way they say it in the Bible is 60 cubits high and 6 broad. That's a lot of sixes. <laughs> and he gathered all the dignitaries at the dedication of the image. Now, this makes you think about the worship of the beast. In Revelation, Nebuchadnezzar's pr profane image foreshadowed the image of the beast that Revelation will set up. Sound of all kinds of music playing and people will fall down and worship. The vast empire and many religions, but he would unify them all under one religion, a state religion. When they didn't bow, the monarch was furious. But seeing who they were, he gave them a little more leniency. He told them, look, okay, I see who you are and I get it. I didn't realize this would be a conflict. So I'm going to give you one more chance because they were supposed to be killed immediately. He said, so just bow now and we'll be fine. You know, He had built a fiery furnace just in case people wouldn't bow. So he's building gardens and he's building a fiery furnace. <laughs> he did everything in a big grandiose style. I mean, this guy. It was a very peaceful time in chapter 2, but it turns on you like a snake. And that's what happens with pagans. They, they'll love you and try to kill you all at once. It's real strange about how they think. And so I was looking back at a CVS, Christian Values Summit, and I was listening to this guy's word probably 10 years ago, but he said, we have to resist this. We will not respect this. He says, we must resist at all levels. These are religious liberty legislators. We can be called a, a bigot. He said, I tell you, impeach them. Wait and get the right president back in office, he says. He says, that's the traditional approach. 
He said, we don't have three to five years to sort through this. And he says, it's funny, I went back and looked at my notes to see what he said about Daniel on that CBS. And here it was. Daniel confronted, confronted an unjust law. And he said, you must resist unjust laws. They were building it, and they made the dedication. And it said, did Daniel go underground? Did he go silent? He could not wait. The same thing as now. Not in two to three to ten years do you handle this. So I was going to tell you, part of what you do is you resist the unfair laws. You don't yeah, you don't sit there and think, oh, I have favor and I don't want to risk my favor. And that's what the church is doing. That's what believers are doing. And I thought that was interesting that the Lord spoke to me this morning. Look up CVS and here it is, what he was saying. Don't wait it out. So, in Daniel 3, verse 12, it's a setup. Now he has taken Jerusalem the second time and on this occasion he has carried away most of the city as captives. And he's burned the city and he's burned the temple. And the three friends are set up now and they're tattled on. And it's saying they won't bow. What were they being asked to bow to? Some kind of image? Now what was going on with Daniel at this time? He didn't get caught up in this. Only the three friends if you notice. Furnaces are out of fashion now, but persecution of religion is still growing. <laughs> I want you to see that what you do in this time is no compromise. They did a no compromise position. God will deliver me. But it is all one to me whether I live or die because I will not worship. No compromise. The furnace was turned up. They were tied up. They were thrown in. This is the point on the martyrs where you make up your mind, I will not bow. This is where you say, I sign my testimony in blood. I will not go down. It must have been a terrible feeling to be captive in a land and now you are uh, tied up. The furnace is turned up and you're tied up, then you're thrown in. At that moment, you wonder what's happening. They expect at this moment that they may be just seen as glowing chips, <laughs> little human chips. But at this point, they tell you, God will rescue me. He sees them Nebuchadnezzar is, is looking over and he looks into it and he sees them walking and the fourth man appeared in the fire and, and Nebuchadnezzar goes, did we not throw three men in? There's four. And you see that God shows up. That in your worst furnace, in the worst place, it shows that the Lord shows up. And not only did he show up, he walks among them and they don't even smell like smoke. It burned your ropes off, but it didn't even burn the hair off their eyes, their eyelashes. It didn't even singe them. It's an interesting thing to see in Revelation, the unharmed here. How they were willing to go all the way with the Lord. The grace to face this kind of persecution. 
The king tells him what he saw, and thereby he convicts himself. Man is incapable of doing us any real harm. They walk out with unblistered feet. The grace to face it. A miracle was needed to bring a halt to the persecution of God's people in an attempt to destroy Jehovah worship. Nebuchadnezzar immediately issues an edict of tolerance for their God. He promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's interesting. These were the first martyrs recorded in the Bible. This is the first instance of martyrs. Although they were miraculously preserved because they loved not their life even to death. So I like the fact that the first martyrs in the Bible came out unharmed. Because by the time they're turning up the furnace and they're dumping you in there tied up, you can see they love not their life. It's kind of like the fact that the first martyrs were rescued. You know, it's that ultimate defer. They deferred completely to God, and God deferred completely to them. It foreshadows the courage of the people in Revelation who will not worship the false systems and will eventually be promoted to positions of authority in the millennial kingdom if not before. So Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word, for sure, and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people and nation or language which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut into pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap. He likes that. Because there is no other God who can deliver like this. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now you begin chapter 4. Let's leave it off here. <laughs>